I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Phil Saray on the show of Jenny and Francois Selections. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? Nice to have you here. Happy to be here. So you told me once that you learned about wine from drinking a lot of bad wine. How did that uh, <laughs> How did that all start? Well, it wasn't too much bad wine. It was a short period. Uh, basically, after college, I went to France and uh, got to use my grandmother's apartment. And uh, we decided to live French a little bit and cook some meals. And there was some of this wine left over. And it was uh, really pretty basic stuff. And what was Paris like at that time? Um, you know, it was uh, it was a lot of culture, and it was a lot of fun to just go around all day and do cultural stuff, and then pick up uh, food and kind of live the French life, and have some cheese after the meal, and have some of this uh, grandma wine. It, had that been something that had you'd had some experience with in the states, or no? Was it more like the supermarket experience? Um. Well, my parents are French, and my mom was a pretty good cook, um, but they liked the supermarket. <laughs> yeah, that was something. You know, my dad did the shopping once a week, and but we'd go in summer to France, and then uh, we'd find that uh, there you 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 buy from more small stores, and and you have cheese after your meal, and all that kind of stuff. And did you start traveling around a little bit? Um, my aunt had an apartment in Avignon, so I took a, a trip with my girlfriend there. And that's where we finally had a meal where we were served some young Chateauneuf du Pops and and um, it was really a gr first of all a great restaurant and then the wine was really fresh and compared to the stuff that we were drinking in Paris apartment it was amazing. And at the time the the Rhone wasn't so well known. No, as far as wine, you mean? Well, I mean just uh, wine in this country, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. For it was wine. it was new. It was new, but it was it was very new to me. So what what era? This is like the eighty. This is nineteen eighty seven, yeah. and and so you come back to New York, right? Came back to New York, uh, didn't have a job, so I I lived at home, and uh, decided uh, the wine thing was kind of neat. There was this wine shop that I could walk to uh, called Zaki's. I've heard of that place. Yeah, small wine store in Scarsdale, and uh, I was able to walk there, and uh, so I got a job and started working there. And and what was that experience like? Um, it was great because, uh, there 
you know, I uh, started really getting into wine and, uh, and, and reading about it and um, bringing home bottles in the evening. And, and uh, because I was living at my parents' house, I had a little bit of a budget for, for drinking some wine. And it was great. And what were you reading back then? I mean, what was the normal? Well, the the first book I grabbed was the was a new book from Robert Parker called "The Wines of the Rhone Valley in Provence," and uh, that was the book that I that sort of, you know, opened my eyes to, you know, this way of talking about wine. And he sort of laid it out and classified it in a way that made sense and was neat, you know. And you were drawn to the those Rhone wines at the time. Exactly, exactly. I really wanted to try what he was describing and. And, you know, and I had had the Chateauneuf du Pops so experience. And, and so I wanted to try what he was describing. It was really getting me excited about it. And you said one time you, you traded somebody a bottle uh, for some for some Giganda and some Chateauneuf, actually. Well, my parents, um, my parents drank wine. My mother drank wine with meals, but it wasn't anything great. You know, she back then there was a lot more jug wine and. And uh, she, I think she was drinking the Almaden and, and stuff like that. That's so. what my dad did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but there was this one bottle in, in the cellar that was a gift, I guess. It was a 1964 Chateau Latour uh, first growth, you know. And I guess I, I, I found the bottle and, and, and brought it to my parents and said, you know, um, maybe I could trade this for a few more bottles, you know. And uh, so I brought it to uh, Don Zachariah. Was she like, day. make sure you get the Almaden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make sure you get something good for you. Um, I don't know how it came to, to them, that, that bottle, but. Um, so Chateau Latour, I mean, pretty Chateau famous. Chateau Latour, very famous. Had some age. Very right? expensive, had some age. And uh, I asked uh, Don Zachariah, the owner of Zaki's, if uh, he'd be willing to trade it for like, you know, five bottles of Chateau Neuf du Pop. And he sort of grabbed the bottle and then said, sure, you know, he seemed like it was a pretty good deal to him. And so that, you know, I felt less guilty about opening five good, really good bottles of wine than um, this one really expensive wine. And what were you drinking? Net exchange. I had done my research, so I grabbed a a pretty good memory for wine. So I I grabbed three bottles of Bocastel, 81, two of those, and an 83 and uh uh gigondas le pelier oh okay 1983 i think that was which was in the state that later would yeah it was when the the rue uh when the rue uh, family owned uh pelier it still had a good reputation back then what was it like drinking the Bucastel? uh the 81 Bucastel was a revelation that was like an amazing bottle of wine you know just it had it all it was velvety it was just amazing from then I was hooked. That was that was the wine. And, and what we might say a little bit rustic, you were down with that, like at that. At yeah, the, yeah. At and, that stage, yeah. And probably still are, right? Like, I mean, yeah, to some level. Yeah. So you end up hearing about Lapierre, and how did that all go down? Um. Well, I I moved to the West Coast. I started working for Kermit. And, oh, okay. Uh, Kermit Lynch in Berkeley. Kermit Lynch in Berkeley. Um. And uh, uh, took a trip to France to do the, a bit of the wine tour and, and stopped at my uh, family's house uh, just outside of Paris. My uncle had some wine. And we were sitting down to dinner. It was like a July night, July evening. It was hot. And he actually brought out a bottle of Vieux Telegraph. He, had, he liked that wine. And since they had that 
summer place in Avignon. They they, they knew the domain. And it was uh, we were having something like merguez and couscous and vegetables and something like that. And it didn't seem like that was the right wine for it. So he went and grabbed this uh, this Morgon with the wax capsule, a white label, you know, the, the La Pierre Morgon. It was an 88 vintage. And it was nice and cool from the cellar. And it was just an amazing wine. You know, I thought, wow. And at the time, there really wasn't a lot of Cru Beaujolais of any kind in the States. Yeah, at Kermit's shop, there was, uh, you know, he had a few, a few good ones, Diachon, uh, Chignard, and, uh, and you know, after trying this wine, I thought, you know, he's going to like this. And uh, I asked my uncle if he would sell me a bottle, and I was heading down to uh, Bandol, had lunch with Kermit, gave him the bottle, and said, you know. And then it was a few months later that he called and said, you know, he went and visited Lapierre, you know, found out about the no sulfur cuvées, the Jules Chauvet. Because Chauvet was still alive at that time. Jules Chauvet, yeah, I, get the, I guess he was alive at that time. I'm not sure. And uh, so that set off a whole chain of events, which is now known as the, the Gang of Four with Foyard and Lapierre yeah, being yeah. imported by Kermit. Exactly, exactly. And is there a statue of you somewhere in Morgon for this this uh, <laughs> this connection that you made? No, but I have uh, a little picture of a statue in, uh, in 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 one of the frame in my house that it's the Morgon statue. So it's pretty dear to me the those wines and that that relationship. So what was it like working at the Kermit Lynch store back in the day? Back in the day, it was exciting. I mean, you know, we were in the middle of the wine country. You know, and this was a period where Merlot was the big wine, and and there were no California wines in the shop, and hardly a Merlot. And people would come in and ask for that kind of thing, and and we would, you know, try to turn turn them onto something else. How often was that successful and not successful? I mean, what was? Oh, it's pretty successful. Pretty, you know how it is with retail. People come in, and you know, either they're really going to walk away, but there was really nowhere close by to walk away to. So. Right. I think they many of them knew kind of what they were getting into. And, and one of the great things about that shop was that um, whenever a container came in, whenever those new wines, everything was opened, you know. We tried everything, and and so that was, you know, we were a knowledgeable staff. You know, we tried Kosturi bottles came in, we tried those. And how did you end up working there? You came from Zaki's, and you showed up in Berkeley, and, and what happened I had next? this plan to move to Berkeley. I had a friend who lived there, and he said I could stay there. So um, I had uh, purchased a copy of Kermit's book, Adventures on the Wine Route. Oh, okay. You know? So I wasn't familiar with it, but I, I read it on the plane. To Berkeley. Uh, to Berkeley, and read the whole thing. It was a real page-turner. It was, it was, I think I had initially gotten a grasp of what, great one was but it wasn't really focused and this book really sort of made me feel like this is this is the way to look at wine i felt the same way it mm. had a big impact on me and i read it like a couple times like oh yeah you know, yeah like, there's certain parts that you want to read again and so you get to the the you get to berkeley and how long does it take you to show up at kermit's store I think it took a, a few hours before I walked down the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really close by, you know. I was on uh, staying on Cedar Street, and I think it's on Cedar and San Pablo. So it was pretty quick before I, I walked in there and looked around. And what was the process towards like getting employed there at that time? Well, at the time, Kermit spent a full six months in France, and and it was winter, and he was in he was uh, in France at the time. Was that right? Yeah, I think so. Well, anyway, he was in France and he wasn't there. And so 
I, I started buying a few of the wines and uh, getting familiar with them. And as a customer, you come in yeah. and buy this and yeah. say, "Hey, guys." And, exactly. And exactly. Then they were like, "Come on to our side, bro." Or <laughs> what, what happened? Well, I, I I was living in San Francisco, and my girlfriend had moved out to the West Coast, and we decided to to, to make the trip across the bridge and and go shop there. And and that day, Kermit was there, and my uh, we decided my my girlfriend approached him and said, "Hi, you know." My boyfriend's a big fan, you know. I like that approach. Yeah. Send a pretty <laughs> helped, girl in. It helped. <laughs> <laughs> to mediate. You could see Kermit got excited right away. So, well, it was nice. He asked, you know, I, I told him that I would be interested in working in the shop and he he had me come in the next day. And, and it seems like a pretty straightforward operation when you go in today. Like there's cases of wine on the floor and it's, there's not a lot of shelving and it's like things yeah. are kind of laid out. I mean, what yeah. was it like back then? Exactly the same. Exactly, exactly the same. same. Hadn't changed at all. And I mean, I went back uh, uh, a few years ago, and and uh, looks exactly the same. And so you're you're hanging out at Cafe Franny, and yeah, yeah, the good discount on the. I think we got free cappuccino, and and we got a loaf of bread at Acme, which was next door, and so we were well stocked, and and they got the discount on the wine, and and so it was a it was a good it was a good thing. And did you do the Chez Panisse experience or? Yeah, I did the Chez Panisse thing. That was, that was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, I remember going there by myself, I guess, uh, I didn't have anybody to go there with. And so I think I went there at four 30 in the afternoon upstairs at the cafe. I was pretty much alone and had a, a really nice, pleasant lunch, uh, with some wine and, you know, got a little, got a little giddy and, uh, and in a good way, you know, it was really just an amazing meal and amazing uh, wine. How long were you at Kermit's uh, shop for in terms of working? Um, I think it was two years, two, yeah. three years, something like that. And what was the next thing after that? What, what? I went to Europe and uh, was trying to see if I, you know, couldn't live over in Europe for a bit and ended up going to Prague. Oh, okay. That was sort of the time when just after, uh, just after uh, the wall came the down. The wall and, came down and you heard about the weed and... <laughs> and there was a lot of Americans there. There was a, actually there was a friend of mine who lived there, and he told me to come on over. And that was like the mid '90s or early '90s, or? early '90s, yeah, yeah. Because I remember that period of time of being in college around that time, and people yeah. were like, "Yeah, Prague, man, let's go." Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. I never went. It, it was cheap. It was cool cheap, and uh, and it was a good time. Yeah. And how did you swing back into the wine thing? What happened? Well, I decided to move back, and so. Got another job, uh, another uh, retailer who did wholesale in California called the Wine House, and, oh, okay. and uh, you know they were they had good selection of wine. They were repping Bobby Catcher wines at the time, so sure. And that was kind of a yeah. go era for Catcher, like people yeah. were into the wines at that. Yeah, time. there was uh, there was a lot of good shops in, in San Francisco. There was Pacific Wine Company. They were sort of German specialists and would hang out with those guys, and you know formed. Um, a wine tasting group with some of the guys from Kermit Lynch. And so we kept in touch with those wines and continue to buy those. And so at some point you end up in New York on the wholesale side. How did that all come about? Um, I guess it was another, another um, trip to Prague and a longer stay there. And instead of coming back to San Francisco, decided to move back uh, to New York and, um, it was my idea, sort of. Uh, I did a harvest at Lapierre when I was in Prague, you know, and um, decide. And he sort of asked me what I was going to do, and I, I said I would probably work in wholesale in New York. I didn't know how I knew that, but 
it sounded a little intimidating, you know, but that's what I ended up uh, doing. What was he like in person, Marcel, up here? Marcel was a great guy. I mean, everybody loved Marcel, you know. I mean, he was a real bon vivant, yet he really, he took people under his wing. He wanted to teach people. He had this one side that was really, you know, a professor and, and serious uh, when it came to the wine and then sort of a big party was always happening. It was it was just a, a place where people would just drop in and start drinking and be welcome. And it was quite quite something. What was the harvest like? Harvest was uh, an intense party. It was really, you know, a lot of work, but a lot of partying and everybody lived right there. It was like a student dorm upstairs and downstairs there were dinners and lunch for 35 people. But usually by the end of the evening, there was you know, close to 45 people. And uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a great party. Well, I mean, how did it go just in terms of the wine side with the harvest? I mean... Uh... Well, I arrived in uh, Morgon. He's near the town of Vie-Morgon. And pretty much when, when we start harvesting, when we start harvesting there, or when he started harvesting, uh, everybody else had finished, you know. Okay, so, so he was picking. The later. town was lively, and then two days later, it was empty. And not only was he picking late, but he was picking. He was doing two passes through the vineyards. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is was pretty much unheard of in Beaujolais. I mean, if yes. that's if the weather was good. If it was rainy, I think it would all get harvested. But they would check the uh, weather, and so we did a first round where you take half the grapes off, and then and then there was a, a break. And then come back, and then the grapes were really ripe, what was left, and harvest that. And did you see some of the differences in, on the vinification side between the different bottlings and things? Um, yeah, I mean, I stuck around for a lot of that. And there was, you know, there was the, the Nouveau was being made at the same time. as, um, But at the time, I remember only one, uh, essentially one bottling of uh, Morgon. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, the idea was you, you'd harvest the grapes and they'd be in these uh, bins, bins, and they'd get put in a refrigerated truck that was hanging out behind the domain. So the grapes pretty much came out of the truck frosty in the morning, and that's how the vinification would start, very slow, very cold. And, and what did you see in terms of the non-sulfur at that time? I mean, it was still kind of early days uh, for American appreciation of that kind of wine. I mean, did it sink in with you right away or well before i did the harvest when i was working at kermit i visited the next year yeah. up here and we did a tasting and down in the cellar and and his favorite thing to do was to at the end of the tasting is to have three bottles and one was the uh sulfured and filtered and then there was the lightly sulfured non non-filtered and then there was the unsulfured unfiltered you know the natural one i thought he was going to double it up like one would be offered to you twice to see if you could see the difference <laughs> well the difference was subtle between the first two but it was clearly the best one was the last one the the zero sulfur was clearly the best one and i think that's you know i think that's the impression when you do a test like that you know you want to drink that one, you yeah. Know, the one that's completely, and then we drank all the bottles that he kept around. Were the oh, he always drank the unsulfured stuff, and and uh, bottles were just great. They aged well. Uh, it was just a pleasure to drink those wines. 
What did he say about it to you? I mean, when he would talk about it, what, how did he approach this? Uh, he was pretty. He was pretty. You know, he was pretty careful about the vinification. You know, I mean, you try to go towards that, and then hopefully you can do it. Are you there know, some years not... where it was more difficult because of the? Oh, absolutely. Conditions? They they would do. I mean, it wasn't left to chance. I mean, those guys would look at things through a microscope. They had a microbiologist with the microscope, and every few days they would have slides and and look at the yeasts and see what was happening and if they need to intervene in some way or do something uh, not too radical, but, and, um, you know, and then there could be the bottling that would be lightly sulfured, and then there was the unsulfured. And did he ever talk about Chauvet? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he even gave me the book that uh, Jacques Neopor wrote. Yes. Yeah, he good, said good. It's, it's a good book, it was in French, it was very technical. But it talked about, you know, all those things. Um, I think uh, we met Auvernois once. He came and, and LaPierre said, you know, he started doing it before I did and he knows a lot and that kind of thing. So um, <clears throat> so you make it back to New York and you're doing the wholesale thing. But how did that come about? Well, I had to figure out where to work. So I wanted to work at uh, the distributor that had the Kermit Lynch wines. Yeah. And that was Winebow at the time. Sure. Still is. And uh, did you see a difference between what was offered in the West Coast and what was offered in the East Coast or the reception? Well, I think it first started that I, I didn't get the job right away at Winebow. I, I had to apply a couple of places, but essentially I wanted the job at Winebow. So they gave me the, uh, a, a territory that was up in Westchester. Oh, okay. Well, you're from that area. Yeah, from that area. And, and it was pretty much... Um, you know, go out there and open new accounts kind of territory. Got so it. not exactly it Kermit wasn't Lynch. The uh, bread butter. Uh, Kermit Lynch. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, you have to, you went with the. Stag Sleep and Duckhorn. Yeah, and the Bogle yeah. and the. Right, 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 right. At the time right. it was Domain St. George was my big. Uh, Got it. That was uh, the least expensive wine in the book. People were like, where's that unsulfured cuvee? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it wasn't happening. <laughs> no, it was happening. I, I did manage to, to sell some up there and. I managed to open quite a few accounts, and a year later, they they invited me to do to, to uh, sell wine in Manhattan for restaurants. And yeah, because I remember going to like Moss back in the day, Moss Farmhouse, yeah, and looking at that list and being like, "Wow, unbelievable selections on the Kermit Lynch thing." And then I was like, oh, "Who's the wine buyer here?" And then I gradually put it together that, in a way, you had a big influence on on that buying because you were his rep and right. you were kind of helping him along. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I was like, wow, this is a great, great selection. Like somebody knows what's up, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, so were people starting to get into Lynch? Because I feel like the reception for Lynch on the East Coast was always a little more lagging than it was on the West Coast because he wasn't here much and, you know, for several reasons. Yeah. I um, Basically, that was a concern when they asked me to come to New York to do the Manhattan restaurant selling thing was the big question was uh, – what can we do, you know, sell more Kermit Lynch wine? What are you going to say when people don't want to buy it? Or that kind of <laughs> <laughs> That's the, yeah. that's that the was, interview that was question. The interview, yeah. When you get shut down, yeah. how are you going to respond? Yeah, and, exactly. Well, I'm going to TP their restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you find worked? I mean, you know. Well, you know, Winebow had all these California, blue chip California things that everybody had to have yeah. at the time. At the know? time. I mean, Sonoma Couture. Yeah, that was uh, was a big thing reserved for on-premise only pretty much I mean, just tiny bits trickled to retail so 
it was an amazing door opener. And there's all these accounts that want to buy these things from you and you could go down the list. And so that was money. And then there was this other, and then stuff. There was this other stuff that was fun to sell. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And you were working with Wheeler back then? Was he part of the crew? No, or? he was at Skernick. He'd left already. Yeah. He, he did like a decade there, so I wasn't sure if yeah. it, it over, overlapped or not. No, it's, uh, I, I had heard of, the, you know, Michael Wheeler, um, that he had worked there, that he was an important salesman. Tina Fisher was, uh, was selling wine retail and she wasn't there anymore. And, and, and then you ended up working for Polliner with Wheeler. Like, yeah. And years later. And years the later. job interview was like a couple bottles of wine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had to pass the test, you it, know. It, it's like drinking with, uh, you know, Russians or something like that. Well, <laughs> if you can hold your vodka. Yeah. I got to see the email he wrote. You know, you know he, he said, uh, I vote to hire, but, uh, he, you know, maybe he needs to take off those uh, blinders a bit from Winebow and uh, be a bit more global. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah I shouldn't oh. have read that email. It wasn't yeah, meant that, to be coming to me. And, and, yeah. But it really did, uh, it did make me realize that, uh, you know, in this business, you, when, you're sell, when you're a salesperson, you can be kind of locked into what you do. And, and then there's sort of this bigger wine world. Uh, that's why I never wanted to do it, because yeah. from the buyer perspective, you can see the whole thing. But from Absolutely. the seller perspective, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to go there. But it would be really interesting to 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 have that opportunity to have well, all the reps come to you and taste amazing things with you. Well, I mean, to the extent that they do, I mean, there's headaches too. But of, you know what I mean, like. Yes. But you, one of the things that's great is you can see the whole what's available yeah. as opposed to yeah. you know, because yeah. I often saw that the reps for a certain thing didn't see the whole thing you know right, what i mean right and then they would be like this is a really great x yeah. and you would taste it and be like well I, I i personally feel like this isn't a pretty good x you know what i mean <laughs> exactly and then they'd be like well what do you mean and be like well i mean i think this other x is really good you know what i mean and and one time i remember and this is totally futile so i would never do it again or recommend that anyone do this in fact i would strongly recommend that you not do this but i was like i'll show you and i went and i got a bottle of of Syrah <laughs> that you know somebody had put, tasted me on a Syrah and I was like this is not that great you're saying it's wonderful and they're like well what's better than this right you know? and I was like well this you know what I mean <laughs> and I opened it up and poured it for them and they were very frustrated right. like and not appreciative right. of the wine or me yeah <laughs> like yeah pretty angry I think I did that once in a while you know yeah from my end you know I'd be like well what are you pouring? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, that you won't take this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. What was the move like at Polner at that time? It seemed like a great book. I mean, it was it was the it company, and and um, the reason it came to me is because one of their top sales guys decided to go into the management side of uh, of uh, <clears throat> of the book, and so it opened up a territory that was interesting enough to. Okay, I think I remember exactly when that happened yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but I, I felt that at Winebow they had a good book. They had Kermit Lynch. I was attached to that, but I also felt that Polaner maybe had a geekier book that was more wine focused, and it was. You know, from the owner being right there to people like Michael Wheeler and the, and the other salespeople at the time. And so uh, eventually, though, you swung back on the on the Kermit thing. Well, yeah, two two years later. I mean, I, I Poliner had great wines, but we were starting to sell more, you know, wines that you actually make money with, you know, and 
And so the opportunity to Which sell Kermit Lynch only was... Uh, that seems like a recurring theme, though. The, the, the wines that make money versus the wines that you're really into. I mean, yeah. is that been, when you're a commissioned much, sales rep, I mean, yeah, everybody likes to get orders and reorders and yeah, be able to pay for things in yeah. a, in a capitalist the, world. And so stuff. one day, uh, you know, the wines you have to sell, the next day, the wines you want to sell, maybe you can work it out that way. Sometime. But I mean, ha has it shocked you or surprised you how much the wines that you wanted to sell became the wines that you could sell like easily? Because yeah, it seems I like mean, now people. Well, now people really know wine. Yeah. I mean, you think that's the difference to customer education? Customer, I, I, I always thought the customers could get it if you show it to them. And now more than ever, of course, there's so many sources, so many people selling wine, so many small companies. And, and I think that you find that salespeople go from these bigger companies and start their own company and they're really good salespeople. So they've got good stuff, but they know how to sell it too. And it's, and oh, I, I, it. I think a buyer now has so many good salespeople and good wines to choose from now that you don't need to have a brand or a big recognized name. And have, have, have did that take you by surprise at all? The decline of brands or. Yeah, it, I think it happened slowly, but it, for sure. I mean, you know, there was a time when you try to sell champagne and everybody told you they had to have a Clicquot and pretty much just that was, and then you started seeing that eroding and, and now you don't see Veuve Clicquot. What do you think the causes of that erosion were? I mean, why have people gone anti-brand in your mind? Like having witnessed it on the sales side in the street. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, well, I, you wrote an article about that, uh, you know, the death of the California cult wine. I'm just having you, want, I, that's why I was No, but I, I read that me. and, 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 <laughs> and uh, I, I agree with a lot of what you, you said about that. It's, uh, you know, the wines weren't as exclusively available only on premise. You know, the people didn't want to spend as much money and, and lists got smaller. And, and, um, and just, uh, you know, back then we used to fight sort of the battle, you know, the new oak versus you know, not new oak. And, and now it just seems like so many wines are not oaky monsters and they're, you're competing against something else, something better. You don't need to talk about those things as much. I'm always shocked by how the big fights of yesteryear seem so trivial now. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. You're like, yeah. wow, people used to get all worked up about that yeah. thing. And yeah. you're like, really? People used to get worked up about that? <laughs> and now you see you like, you know, 23-year-olds coming in and... Well, you, you know, know I, I like voicing the losing side from years ago, but it turns out to have won. You know what I mean? Well, I, I have a you know two kids, so I go out sometimes to suburban restaurants that where I won't be embarrassed, and I look at the wine list. Uh, not that I'm going to order anything, but I uh, just look at it, and I'm, I see these brands, and I'm like, oh, that that's where it, that's where it is. That's know? where it goes now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and probably through broad swaths of America that aren't. Famous. I think so. Yeah. And do you think that that's going to change? I mean, because sometimes I'm like, well, I wonder if they'll remarket. But then I think that the, maybe the pool of buyers in middle America is so big that they're like, no, we found our niche. I think, I think they found their niche, yeah. I think, you know, it's not the market share. They, and I think that's why some of these brands are going to companies like Southern, you know, because they have the in to these huge corporate restaurants and chains. And Sometimes I think that the really history of wine is it's really just the history of distribution like in the same way that the history of trade is about where rivers are like the history of wine is about how you 
traverse the distribution of it. You yeah. know what I mean? And and the fact that like the internet and uh, global calling and constant updates about the world are so much easier now. You can communicate yeah. that that has changed the model for what's possible on a small scale, but it's also changed uh, like the whole setup for brands and also how they're criticized. Like certain people were basically critics of which brand was better. And that brand of criticism has has lessened as brands have lessened. So sometimes I think it's really just that it's like a history of trade more than a history of wine itself. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, so you you then did end up working for Kermit again on the East Coast. And you, you who do you run into somebody or how did that all reunite? Um well I had a work with with uh, Joe Dresner. Oh okay. Surprisingly enough that day and um because you were with Polliner and he was with Polliner. He was with Polliner and I had worked with him and how did, how did those go? You have to have some good stories. About oh, that. I know. Everybody warned me about it. Yeah. Oh, so so unfortunately, know. I don't have a great story about it because good. mine went pretty well. You were ready for it. You were like, <laughs> no, it went without incident. You know, it was right, pretty. Right, right. <laughs> I, I heard some stories, but um, Joe was a great guy, and I think he appreciated, you know, what bummed him out was when he saw something he didn't like. Right. right. Not guys who are really into Morgon early in the day. Yeah. That didn't bum them out. No. <laughs> yeah. It was guys who are, you just didn't mention the boggle sales. Is that what, <laughs> you're like, well, you're sweep that under the rug conveniently. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm Yeah. Kidding. No, there's a few people that at the company that were great salespeople of Dresner, you know. And so I kind of came in there as, you know, I want to help. And, uh, and he was a great guy, you know. Seemed like he always had a big appreciation for the gang for actually. Like I always he got did. the sense that like yeah. if he could have imported them, he, he would did. have he loved He imported to. Foyard for a little tiny bit. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Boy, he, the he hidden history a, of New York. Yeah. He had a, a, a problem with one of the vintages. I think it was 91 or something. Wow. 91. That far back. Wow. I think. I'm Amazing. not sure. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't come into Foyard till like 2000-ish. Yeah. No, he had it you know? for a vintage or two. He told me. Huh. So, so yeah. our work with ended up getting canceled. Oh, okay, um, okay. And I ended up going on my own, and and I ran into Bruce Nyers, who is the national salesman for Kermit Lynch, who I knew well. Like at a restaurant having lunch or something. It was at Ledoux's. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he was finishing one call and you were starting another that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. I came in. So we exchanged cards, and he kind of looked at me with a there was a look in his eye that sort of. I don't know, made me have a pause for a moment. I thought towards the end of that year, I, I, you know, shortly after we had this encounter, I sent him an email asking if he had ever envisioned, you know, having somebody, you know, local rep the Kermit Lynch book. And Which they this really was needed, uh, I think. 2008, the end of 2008, when there was a recession. recession. And I thought, this is, they probably need help. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, now they have several people <laughs> repping it locally, yeah, you know. Yeah. That that was the plan at the time. It was being executed, and so, um, yeah, he they hired two people for New York, and you know, and and for part of the East Coast, and one of those was Phil Saray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I it was like coming back to Winebow. People at Winebow were like, "Oh, you got your dream job," you know, and, and right, like, right, 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 stuff. But uh, coming back, it wasn't just Winebow who was distributing the wines. It was IPO. Because they some of the selection the, the new kids in the IPO, yeah, especially the Italian stuff. IPO started with the Italian stuff. The Italian stuff was with Bowler and uh, 
uh, it was going okay, but you know, IPO made a bold move towards those. I remember someone from IPO coming and telling me that they were going to import Kermit Lynch's Italian stuff, and I called her a liar because I was like, "There's no way that Kermit imports it to Italy." I was <laughs> like, "I've never heard of Kermit Lynch Italians. You're totally lying." <laughs> and then uh, I thought, you know, like joking, you know what right. I mean? Because I'd never heard of them. I'd never heard of that. And I felt like I was at a lecture one time where he said he didn't get involved with Italy because he wasn't into it and didn't speak the language or something like that. And so I thought that was like going forward, not looking back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it turned out he had a bunch of Italian selections, and I was completely wrong about that. Yeah, I guess that that was uh, with IPO on board, selling Italian wine in New York. That was sort of a growth place to grow was it happening like have people responded to those selections in your experience yeah absolutely absolutely do you feel like again it was more value focused well when when i started working at the shop you know 20 years ago they he he had he was importing at the time uh, aldo conterno i didn't know that vietti you know there was some some big names but he ended up one way or the other he was considered a french wine importer and the Italy sort of dropped. I had no idea he used to bring yeah. in. Huh. Because, yeah, I mean, now I think of it as kind of like with Guido Poro and stuff, I think of it as more like uh, excessively priced, you know. Right, right. But he just picked up uh, Cintarelli. Oh, right. Yeah, well, of course. So, yeah, which is cool. And, and that other property. Which you're saying is not <laughs> excessively <laughs> well, priced. Apparently. Not excessively priced. And not excessively. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm kidding. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's picked up a few things from Chatterton recently. So yeah, and and so then you uh, you did that for a while, and then the genuine Francois thing materialized. Yeah, what happened there? Um. Well, I was going to start with another company. Okay. And I had taken a sabbatical, uh, gone to Europe. My wife's Czech from Prague, and. We had two very small kids. Oh, your wife's from Prague. Now yeah. it all comes together. Yeah, yeah. yeah so less weed, more <laughs> <laughs> familial ties. Okay, I got you. Um, so I, I took a break, and uh, we started the year 2012. Uh, was it 2012? Yeah, going to Prague for a while, and um, and coming back, the company with this company that I talked to was waiting and gonna, and then Jenny out of the blue sort of sent me a Facebook message uh, asking if I'd be interested in a, in a huge position. That's how she put it. And I, uh, it sounded interesting. And she seems I met her. Uh, like really great. I mean, She's as far great, as I can yeah. tell, yeah. I mean, super nice and yeah, intelligent exactly. and cares about what she does and yeah. was willing to stick with it. I mean, it's been several years of, yeah. you know, I mean, the book is great. And I didn't know the book as well as I do now, of course. And so I was taking a bit of a chance, but I kind of felt that, it would be interesting. I would have fun on the wine side, and it's been completely that way. Mm, what What are the wines that really call your name in the book these days? Is it more of the French stuff or some of the budding Italian stuff? Or? Um, really like the Italian stuff. That uh, that's been a pleasant surprise, and a few really solid properties that I like a lot. So that was a good direction to go. I think you know, ramping it up, but with good stuff. And do you feel like the like the market has changed enough that there can be several distributors of natural wine in New York and that all works out, even though you don't have those kind of like door openers that you used to have for the branded retail segment. Yeah, I think, you know, we we were, we just hired another rep, so now we're four reps, but 
um, <clears throat> if you have the good accounts, then you can you can have a several. Do you natural feel wine companies like the buyers are uh, more doing mixed things? Like I'm going to have more like conventional next to natural and people can pick what they want or do you feel like it's more it tends to go more towards like people are like i'm doing natural 100 percent on the list i mean which which way does it actually work out on the street well you know you have to sell to a lot of customers i mean i think that's the key when you have a small book so if you're just interested in the people who are the true believers and and want their list to be like that then that's limited got it you know there are some of those but uh there's a lot of people where they I have had encounters with buyers who like a wine, but question whether their buyers, their customers will like it. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to that? I started to try to encourage them to go with their, their feeling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that if they like it, they can convey it. Um, and, and, you know, and one of them is our domestic producer, like Monte Bruno, okay. who makes a Pinot Noir. But it tastes rather natural for, for Oregon, for domestic. And they're afraid that they like it a lot, but that people expect something else from Pinot Noir from the States. And my my feeling is, you know, this is a great movement that's happening domestically. We need to encourage it, you know. I mean, a natural wine movement is, is happening on the West Coast, and that's a great thing, you know. So, I mean, in a way, it feels like your a lot of your career has tracked the, uh, we weren't expecting this non-sulfur thing. Like, you know what I mean? In terms of people tasting wine and not expecting those flavors because of the early association with Lapierre and then following through. I mean, um, how much do you think that it's real that people's expectations can prevent them from opening into new vistas? Or how much do you think that that is quickly overcome? Or what is the reality? I mean, where is the line between subjective understanding and putting up barriers? Well, I think we have producers who make wine that's natural, but in flavor profile, pretty much anyone can understand it and like it. It might be a Bourgogne producer or something. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty classic, just excellent Cabernet Franc. And then there's the the guys who make the more you know, this is obviously natural wine. It's obviously different. And that's where I think you're going to find maybe that the list has some of that, but it needs to have, you know, it's it's somewhere where the buyer the, the will take the customer there if they feel they're ready to go there. And do you think it's harder for someone to have a, a wine that tastes naturally in a known appellation than it is for an unknown appellation. Like if people come in and say like, I know Oregon Pinot Noir right. and it tastes totally different. Is that harder for them than if it were like Istria? It's, you know harder, I mean? it's harder because it just depends how, how you can deal with the occasional return or it's, it's hard to explain to a customer that they're not right. You know, right. I think the, right. the, what you have to do is just whisk the wine away and give them what they're looking for if they seem unhappy. Have you ever had it taken to like a personal level where people are like, you are a bad person for trying to sell this wine to me? Like, you know um, what I mean? No, I've, I've had it with a friend or two, you know, that really just don't like the company or it's, 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 it's rare, but you know, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, no, those aren't good wines and uh, not meaning ours specifically, but that, that type of wine. That type of wine. 
Yeah. It's kind of hard when they're your friend to, you know, but they're into wine. I thought I was sorry. <laughs> so what's next for Phil? Try story? not to have too many fights. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you're good at that. <laughs> but what's, what's coming up on the horizon for you? I mean, what are you thinking about in the future? Are you taking another no, trip this to is, Prague? Or? This is the future. This is the most. Yeah. Yeah. And do you see it, it as a growing category? Like, uh, you know, natural wine in no. a book that's kind of like set up as a natural wine. Do you see it as like something that can expand in the next few years? I think that, you know, you can sell it and, but you can't be growing it uh, exponentially. I mean, got it. Just the fact that look at a vintage like 2012, uh, there's very little quantity in the North. So, there's less wine and 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 this is the kind of story that you have when you have farmers who are working this way you got to take your hits once in a while and say you know we're selling good wine and and there's less of it this year and it's not a model for you know bring it on we've got more and so you can work with more producers and that's a way to grow but then there's always the question of, you know, how many and how many people can you employ to, to, to do this kind of job because you can't sell it everywhere. And and in certain places where it doesn't belong so much, you can sell it because buyers are, are good, but it's it's slow sell through, you know. So the first case, sure, but the second, third case may be a little slower to reorder. Yes. Yeah, if you're out in the suburbs, you know, high spotting certain accounts and you feel good about the buyer and you've got a relationship, but then you see that the they're not selling it as quickly as they should and 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 then so the way to grow it would be to have more or less expensive wines more but that's maybe not the model of the of the company completely and do you see people having more or less success with it at the restaurant level uh following certain trends like for example do people who have more success with it tend to decant natural wines more or do they tend to keep them colder in the cellar or do they tend to present them a certain way and be more successful as a result from your viewpoint? Yeah. I mean, I don't know why I'm not that into decanting myself, but I think it's because wines that are kind of fragile, I've never liked decanting Beaujolais or Burgundy. I know people like to decant Jura because it's, there's a little bit of reductiveness to the Pulsard and other grapes, but I don't like it that much. I, but serving it chilled, keeping it properly, that's that's essential. I mean, I've seen a few restaurants where I know the wine really well and we'll go in there and we'll order it and it's not quite what it was. And I pretty much know that it's it's the storage, you know. So do you think that sometimes when people are like, natural wine is a bad thing, what they're really saying is poor storage is a bad thing? Well, I think that's the problem. It's uh, Everybody always blames the wine, you know, because it's in front of you, because you're drinking it, you're smelling it, and you're saying the problem's the wine. But um, sometimes the problem is the storage. And I guess Kermit was kind of early on that with refrigerator yeah. containers. Yeah. So but he also, I think Kermit also realized that his wine was being distributed to places where it was no longer in his control, you know. And therefore, he tiny could, bit of sulfur at the bottle is the the safer way to go. Because although he did bring in some non-sulfur cuvées, mostly he didn't for a number of years. Like mostly he asked for a little little sulfur, even yeah. from people who yeah. are doing that. He, he 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 got burned, you know, a few times, and and I think for him it was uh, for some people it's it's worth taking the risk, and for him it was a little bit. It's bad for the brand. It's bad for the 
for the, for the estate. Have yeah. you seen refrigeration get better as an issue uh, in the supply chain as, yeah. in, over the yeah. course of your People career? are really, um, you see more wine fridges in people's homes too, you know, and even their small New York City apartments and it's essential, you know, you, and, and the retail stores too. They're not cooking wine, you know. I mean, I used to love that store, Crossroads. Yeah. And Willie Abramsky was a great guy and I loved selling him wine, but I, I feared for it. <laughs> Fear for the wine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it's like sending your kids off to the orphanage. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's still there. You're going to have a tough life. <laughs> um, I mean, do you think that's essentially just an awareness issue? Like about... It needs to be, yeah. I, just like when you see, for me, when you see uh, red wine standing on the counter and that's going to be the by the glass and it has to be at room temperature, I w- I'm just like, how can you chill it down a, a bit? You know, it's a glass pour, but it's too warm and you wish it were a little cooler. That feels like that would probably be almost a constant frustration with you with dining out. Like, I feel like, because a lot of restaurants would let you down on that. Do you, yeah. feel, do you feel yeah. constantly like I need to be close to the ice bucket? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I want a table close to the ice bucket or near the oyster. Yeah, a little bit of shucking. ice, lots of cold water. Yeah, yeah. I, that's how I met Bruce Nyers. Actually, he was the first one I'd ever seen who requested an ice bucket for his red burgundy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and he pretty much wanted everything a little cooler than it was. This was like you know fifteen. Well, 12 years ago or something like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a common request. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I know. I mean, it was, uh, we had a cellar for reds and stuff, but it wasn't common. So you felt it came out at the right temperature and he wanted well, to get a little colder. I, I didn't, I was actually super impressed that someone seemed to care more about it. But right. it, let me put it this way. It came out at a temperature where no one else had ever said, I want an ice bucket. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the history of the thing. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> and that's how we met. You know exactly, what I mean? Right. And now, you know, now we're friends. And what restaurant was that? Uh, it was called Blue in Boston. And the funny story about that is that during that meal, um, well, actually, I was uh, the real story is that I was too shy to be like, who are you? But I, I noticed that there was this guy doing this and he was by himself and he'd ordered a whole bottle of Simone B's, Savigny Le Bon, I think, uh, and I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. Cause right. you know, it's not an everyday thing back then, <laughs> you know, and, uh, just by himself and he's having the salad and the fire alarm goes off. It was a new building. It was in a huge complex and it had a movie theater. So thousands of people would get evacuated in a hotel. Thousands of people would get evacuated when this happened. Unfortunately, it happened like five times when I was there. Um, fire alarm goes off. There's no fire or anything, but you obviously don't know this until you leave and the fire department comes. So we evacuate everybody and the owners like drop the checks on all the tables. And I'm like, you want me to drop the checks on the tables that are still eating? And he's like, yeah, just drop the check. And I was like, okay, well, I work for you. So I'm going to do what you say. Although that seems a little silly to me. You know what I mean? So I dropped the check on this guy and he's like, you owe me a steak and a half bottle of wine, <laughs> you know, cause he's, he was eating his appetizer or whatever and he had to leave and he yeah. wasn't so happy about it, you know? Right. And on the best of days, he's not like a Mr. Cheery singing soprano. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he's a wonderful guy, but yeah. you know, he's a little uh, gruff sometimes, right, right. you know, yeah. that's part of the charm, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'm like, you know, I'm really sorry. And then, uh, I uh, go to the wine tasting that I'm at the next day, uh, which, you know, I think it was Roan or something, but it was a bunch of different distributors. But I get over to the 
the table and there's this guy right. that, the behind the table and he's like i remember you you owe me the steak and a bottle of wine and i was like oh damn and so i was like i know i'm really sorry if we can ever make it up to you you know you can come back in tonight or whatever bottle of wine i mean and uh he's like oh i'm only in town till this afternoon and and uh so then later we became good friends, but this joke has been running for like 12 years where he tells me I almost half a bottle of wine Great. and a steak. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But that that was actually what happened in reality. Um, but yeah, I actually just saw him recently. I uh, met his daughter and, uh, you know, we've, we've become good friends, but it wasn't the most auspicious of starts. And, uh, right. and But I realized that he had to know something right away because he was the only one who ever did that. Asked for that. I mean... Uh, especially at that level, like, you know, it wasn't the lightest wine, even though it was a seven right. of the bone, you know, and yeah. he still wanted it colder. So, yeah. which I, I totally get now at the time I was a little befuddled, but right. you know, I, it's not like I went up to him and was like, what are you doing? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But sir, I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. That was great. Phil Saray of Jenny and Francois Selections. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.